0: I'm delighted to be here with you this morning. Justin asked me a few weeks ago if I could fill in while he's traveling. I um, was a pastor in the area in Rossville for 13 years. We moved here from Chattanooga, so the accent is a North Georgian, East Tennessee accent, so I apologize for that up front. I usually carry an interpreter with me, but hopefully you can understand me. We'll be looking at the book of Ruth this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Ruth. I'll be reading what is in your order of service, Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, the beginning and the ending of the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Epaphites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And then this is the ending of the book of Ruth. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, "'Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him.' Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse." And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning to ask very specifically at this time, that you would send your spirit to open our hearts and our minds to hear your word. We pray that you will bless the reading and teaching from your word and that it would transform our lives. As we look at what you did for Naomi and the transformation you worked in her life, we pray that we will be transformed in a similar, similar way. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The scene is all set. There are presents around the table. There's a birthday cake that's been eaten, and it's kind of everywhere. And the children are excited and happy to open the presents. And then it happens. The gift was not what was expected. Some of you snicker because you've been there. Your daughter or your son looks up at you and asks, Is that all? areas or if it's christmas time they look around and wait for more if you haven't been there as a parent just hang on it's coming expectations expectations are dangerous things when we expect something to happen and it doesn't happen things can go very poorly in a matter of moments now, if you're a parent, you can smile over that story. You've seen temper tantrums about situations like that and tried to exert your parenting skills and the grace that God sometimes gives you in those moments that you take advantage of to calm the situation. But I could tell the story a different way for adults. But it's not birthday parties when you get older, it's dreams and plans and goals. We try to be faithful, we try to be obedient, hoping that our children will grow up and everything goes smoothly with our spiritual life and our family, thinking as we get older that things will slow down into a different phase of life and it will settle down, and then something happens. It could be any number of things. The loss of a job, a health problem, a bad report from the doctor, A crisis in your family that came out of left field and you never expected. And in the most extreme case of shattered dreams, a death. And our dreams and our expectations are shattered. And as you get older, you can go through a longer, dark period when these things happen as you try to reorient yourself to exactly what you're going to do now that this happened. The book of Ruth is about this kind of event. The book of Ruth is a story actually about Naomi. It's a little ironic that it's called the book of Ruth. It's a story about Naomi and how she struggles with trial and difficulty and tragedy and suffering on the front end, and through the process of this story is transformed in the midst of a very difficult and painful circumstance. The truth is, in life, you'll go through many events like that. You'll go through numerous events where you have a plan, and expectation, and you lose sight of that because it's lost, and you try to figure out where you go from there. This book is about death, the loss of dreams, and yet it's also about renewed life. A rediscovered hope. It's about misplaced expectations and rediscovered hope. In the beginning of the story, Naomi starts off with a family, but in the first few verses that we read, she loses her family in a foreign land. And she comes home, we'll see, bitter and empty. But by the time you get to the ending, she now has a family. She's rejoicing, and her friends in the neighborhood are singing praises to Ruth about how great this has turned out. Years ago, I remember hearing John Piper preach a series of sermons on this book, and he said one of the main lessons of the book is that the life of the godly, the life of a Christian who has faith, is not a straight line to heaven. In fact, it is a crooked road. He described it like traveling, we were just in East Tennessee and North, Northwest Georgia, traveling the Blue Ridge Parkway and the twists and turns that you take going on a mountain road. But if you have faith, if you trust the Lord, you will get there. You will persevere. In fact, Popper titled his series, The Sweet and Bitter Providence of God. You're all good Presbyterians, so I assume you know what the word providence means, that God watches out for you and takes care of you even when you don't think he's there. The book of Ruth is about that sweet and bitter providence of God, that God is there, that God cares, that he rules what's happening in your life, and he provides, even in the darkest moment. One of the great hymns of our faith that you could put over this book is William Cooper's hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, that has a verse that says this, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. In the midst of that dark time, in the midst of that frowning providence, it is hard to believe that God is hiding a smiling face. It's hard to believe that God is at work in a way that you can't see. But the book of Ruth teaches us that God is at work even in the darkest of moments. So as we look briefly through the big picture, and I promise this is not going to take two hours to go through this whole book, as, you look, as we look briefly at the big picture of the book of Ruth, I want you to stay alert to the glimpses of grace. There will be moments where you glimpse God's grace when Naomi doesn't see it because Naomi's so bitter she can't see it. And there are lessons there for us. So let's set the context. The book starts out in verse 1 saying it was in the days that the judges ruled. Now at the end of the book of Joshua, so you know, you know the early phases of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua set the stage for for the nation as they get themselves established in the land. At the end of Joshua to the beginning of Samuel is approximately 400 years. It's a long period of time. It's a longer period of time than the people lived. And in that 400-year period, they went through the cycles of Judges. And if you know anything about the book of Judges, they go through a cycle where they do something bad, God rebukes them, they get in trouble, they say, God, please help us, and God saves them, and then the cycle repeats itself. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? At the end of the book of Judges, it's the very last verse. It's a, it's a dark verse, in fact, if you've never read it. It's Judges twenty one twenty five. It's one page back in your Bible. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the time period of the book of Ruth. It's a very dark time in Israel, this constant cycle of sin and judgment and repentance and deliverance, and then again. And what the book of Ruth does is gives us a sense of hope in the midst of this time when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. We're going to step through the book of Ruth in four scenes. And each scene is going to be connected to the chapter that it's in. The first scene, the first act, if you will, is Naomi's trial and bitterness, Ruth chapter 1. The second act is Naomi's glimpse of God's grace, chapter 2. The third act is Naomi's renewed faith, chapter 3. And the fourth act is Naomi's rediscovered hope. I'll repeat those again as we go through it. That's the four stages that we're going to follow and track in the life of Naomi as God moves her from a a time of bitterness and pain to a rediscovered hope. So the book begins with this very difficult scene that as a famine rose in the land in, chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 1. We find out that there was this man named Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and her sons, Malon and Kilion, who left Israel and moved to Moab. Now, if you know some of the commands in the previous books, they were not supposed to do that. So this sets up the scene to say their action in this, in leaving the land is very likely a failure on their part to trust God. It's very likely categorized as a sin, which makes this story all the more remarkable because it's very likely that their mistake put them in this place to begin with. So imagine being this family, living in a foreign land in Moab, being there, and then your two sons marry foreign women, which, if you know, they weren't supposed to do that either. And then within a short period of time, Elimelech, the husband, dies. So you're a wife living at that time period in a foreign land, and your husband dies. And you're left with your two sons who took Moabite women, and then they lived there about ten years, and in that time period, Malon and Kilion died. And Naomi is left without her two sons, or her husband, verse 5. You think she had any inkling that that was what was going to happen when they moved to Moab? They left a famine to try to find food. And she ends up losing her husband and two sons. In the midst of this, she hears, verse 6, that the Lord visited the land of Israel and they have food. So she's going to come back home. Then it goes through this long explanation of her interaction with Orpah and Ruth, and Ruth, and you get that famous section where Ruth says she'll commit to her, and her God will be uh, your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So Naomi relents when she sees Ruth is determined to go. Said no more. Now what I want you to notice is as they come back in verse nineteen. When they returned to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred. And the women said, is this Naomi? Which means pleasant. Her name means pleasant. She says to them, this is verse 20, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Don't call me pleasant. I left with a husband and two sons and thought I had the future in front of me, but now I come back empty. Watch what she says. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, if we could spend some time looking at that verse by itself, notice what's happening. She recognizes that everything comes from the hand of God, like a good Presbyterian would. But she has no notion of Joseph's theology. Right? In the book of Genesis, one of the stories the Israelites told over and over. When Joseph gets sold into slavery and goes through all that he goes through and faces his brother at the end of his life, he does not pay them back with vengeance, but he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. She understands that God's in control. What she doesn't like is how this came about, and she thinks that God is against her when he's really not. Now, how often is it the case that our life goes in such a way that we feel as if God's against us? only to discover a year or two years down the road that God was still at work and we just couldn't see it. Now I want you to notice something else she doesn't see. She said she went out full, but the Lord brought her back empty. Did she come back empty? No. She came back with Ruth. But she can't even see Ruth because her bitterness is so deep. Third thing that she doesn't, really embrace fully is that in verse 22 they came back to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest there's food so we see by the time we get to the end of chapter one that Naomi's bitterness is so deep and so strong that she can't see the glimpses of grace right in front of her her faith is so shattered that she can't she's disoriented to a degree that she can't see what God has placed right in front of her So chapter 2, Naomi's glimpse of God's grace. Again, chapter 2 begins with a flash of grace. Notice what verse 1 says. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now Naomi doesn't say that. The narrator says that. And if we would have spent more time in chapter 1, you'd discover one of the things she said to Ruth and Orpah to keep them from coming is, I don't have anybody for you. You're not going to have a child. In Israel, they had this notion of a kinsman redeemer, which will come up later in the book, that a near kinsman will marry the widow, redeem the land, redeem the family, and continue the family generations. Naomi doesn't think that's going to happen in the midst of her bitterness. And so the narrator puts here, in the beginning of verse one, in the beginning of chapter two and verse one, that she does have someone, but she doesn't remember. Now notice what verse two says. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, "Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor." And Naomi says, "Go, my daughter." Now I want you to notice something here. We'll see this in chapter two and chapter three and make a connection here. Naomi is not the one that acts right here. Naomi is not the one that moves. Naomi is not the one that does the work. Naomi's bitterness and pain and depression or whatever else you want to fill in the gap has numbed her and she's not the one going out. Now granted, she's the older one, but it's Ruth who comes to her. That's a very important point in this story. Ruth comes to her and says, let me go into the field. And Naomi says, go ahead. I love verse 3. Um, Ruth sets out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. The ESV says, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. I remember the old King James, I think it said, her hap happened or her circumstance. She, it, it's that phrase in the Old Testament where the Old Testament writers are saying, she accidentally landed in Boaz's field. She lands in the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And the writer of the book of Ruth is trying to highlight for us that God is the one at work behind the scenes to direct her steps, even though she doesn't know it. And as chapter 2 unfolds, Boaz comes and he's presented as a great man, a man of honor, and he asks about Ruth. And he finds out this is the woman who stayed with Naomi. And Boaz says, oh, treat her very kindly. Take care of her. And he says, come, eat here, enjoy these things. Let me take care of you the best I can. So verse 17, she gleaned in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an etheth of barley, a very large amount. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw, now watch what happens with Naomi here, the change. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied when Boaz fed her. And her mother-in-law said to her, now this should be, you should read this with this kind of expression. If we read the first part of chapter 2 with Ruth saying, let me go to the field and glean and see whose eyes I might find favor, you should read that as an excited young person who thinks they're going to conquer the world, that something good's going to happen. And Naomi goes, go on. By the time you get here and Ruth comes back, you should read verse 19 as Naomi going, where in the world did you glean? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Like she's astonished that this has happened because she thought everything was against her. You ever been there? You think everything that happens, secretly, you're Presbyterian, so you might not say this out loud, but in your heart you think, God's punishing me because I'm such a sinner. And so Naomi is astonished. And all Ruth says is the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And then it's all exclamation marks from there for Naomi. May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. This man is a close relative of ours. He is one of our redeemers. And Ruth, Ruth jumps in the story now because she thinks she's like, verse 21, oh, besides that, guess what else he said to me? He said, keep close to my young men until harvest is finished. So now Naomi is excited because she thinks God might not have forgotten her. She thinks there might still be Hope. And so Naomi says to Ruth in verse 22, This is good, my daughter-in-law, my daughter, that you go out with, this, with these young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Naomi, in chapter 2, caught a few glimpses of God's grace. And when you see that and you see that it happens, it changes your perspective on everything. It is astounding to me how we are wired as humans by our perspective on stuff. You know, all the books that have been written about suffering and trials, there's some very well-known older books about how people suffered in in the Holocaust and how people suffered in uh, Russia, Christians who were killed and other Christians who suffered. So many of those books highlight the fact that in able to withstand that kind of suffering, you have to have a perspective that there's meaning in the world. Because in the midst of the suffering, when you lose your husband and lose your sons, you lose meaning. And you lose hope. Because your hope was placed in the wrong thing. The expectation was in the wrong place. And if you have meaning, and if you have a sense of purpose at where it's going, which is why that notion of providence is so important, then you can withstand a lot of pain and suffering that you go through in the course of your life. As we enter into chapter 3, and we see Naomi's renewed faith, You recall that what we've seen so far is that this bitter providence, this rough life at the very beginning where Naomi lost her husbands and her sons, brought her back bitterly and empty. And God breaks through in chapter 2 with these glimpses of grace that Naomi sees. And now in chapter 3, Naomi's faith has returned. Watch the beginning of chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Now, I just want you to pause and contrast that with the beginning of chapter 2. In the beginning of chapter 2, Ruth came and said, I think I need to go glean in the field. We have to do something. In the beginning of chapter 3, Naomi comes to Ruth, and she says, Should I not seek rest for you that it may be well? Naomi acts. Naomi moves toward God. Naomi moves toward work. This is very important. Her confidence in God has come back. And there's a very important connection here between faith and works and providence. Bitter people, angry people. People who feel like their dreams have been shattered and their expectations have been dashed, they don't make plans. And in the worst cases, they get so depressed they are numb and don't know which way, do not know what to do. When Naomi examined her circumstances in chapter one, she felt like all hope was gone and God was against her, that she came back empty. But now, because of what happens in chapter 2, her faith returns, she has hope, and now she is the one acting and planning. There's been a lot of stuff written about her plans in chapter 3. I think that, personally, I think the plans are trying to uh, communicate to Boaz, who seems to be an older, wealthy person, who may not be comfortable with Ruth and Naomi trying to communicate to him, hey, we're open for this arrangement if we can make this work. I think it's a very subtle move, but we don't have time to look in the details of it. Other people think Naomi got into her old ways and started planning things and jumping ahead of God. I don't know exactly. What I do know is that Naomi is now moving and acting and trusting and taking the steps that she needed to take when she came back into the land. As they make this plan to open the door to Boaz, if you will, it happens at night. Some people have pointed out that chapter 3 is a little microcosm of the whole book. If you look at the whole book as this transformation of Naomi who at one point had a family and a husband and sons, goes into a foreign land, thinks she has the future in front of her, and then there's this complete disorientation. Her husband dies, her sons die, she's disoriented and doesn't know what to do. She goes through a new orientation, a reorientation, as she comes back into the land. And that's the cycle that we go through in life. If you look at your life that way, I'm sure you've had experiences where you think, man, I've got things nailed down. I know exactly where I'm going. I know exactly what I'm doing. And within a few years, something happens and sets that off. And then you think, what am I going to do now? How am I going to approach this? How am I going to handle that? And you go through a phase. Older Christians in the Middle Ages called it the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul. Moments where you can't feel God's presence, you don't know where he is, you don't understand why this is happening, only to come out the other side and then look back and think, I didn't even see this stuff God was doing because he renewed your faith. That's what happens in chapter 3. In the very important situation at the end of chapter 3 as Ruth interacts with Boaz, Boaz says, I I recognize what you're asking, but there's another closer relative than I. We must deal with this appropriately. And what I love about Boaz is, even in situations where Boaz could take a shortcut, Boaz is a man who stays true to his convictions and his integrity, and he does things the way they're supposed to do, which in the midst of suffering and trial, it's often very tempting to take a shortcut. So then we come to chapter 4. Naomi's rediscovered hope. This scene takes place at the city gate. This is a scene very similar to, a let's say, a banking transaction or something, a legal transaction, if you will, where Boaz is asking, who can? you're the closest redeemer, you're the closest kinsman, are you willing to buy Naomi's land? And at first he says yes. And then if you're reading the story and following the narrator, you're like, no! not him and then Boaz pulls the ace card out and he says well when you buy her land you also get Ruth and he goes oh I'm not going to put my future at risk so you go ahead so he gets Ruth he gets the land and then there's a very interesting part of the story where Ruth is compared to Rachel and Leah and Tamar and maybe she have children like them now This part of the story has caused many to speculate that Ruth may have been barren. And here's one of the reasons why. She was married 10 years. Normally, you have kids in that period of time. And she didn't, or at least the Bible doesn't tell us she did. And so there may still be yet another obstacle that she might not be able to have a child. And so they're praying Please give her children. May she be like them and be blessed. Verse 11, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. So verse 13, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Now the conclusion in verses 13 through 17 is fascinating. The conclusion of the book, and we're wrapping it up here, Is not on Ruth at all. The conclusion of the book is not about Boaz. The focus is on Naomi and the child. The story begins with Naomi and her loss, her bitterness, how she would not have a family, how she would not have hope. And then it ends with Naomi's gain. Notice verse 13. Uh, verse 14, I'm sorry. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. Verse 15. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. I'm astounded at how they... Then they're talking about the Lord is going to restore her life, but this child brings hope. This child brings her hope for her family and her future. For your daughter in law who loves you, who in chapter 1 you didn't even recognize when you came back and said you came back empty, that daughter in law is to you better than seven sons. She is the one who has given birth. And notice verse 16. Naomi takes the child, and Naomi becomes his nurse. By the time you get there, the neighborhood is saying, A son has been born to Naomi. The end of verse 17. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse. And there's one last little phrase that makes this story very important for you and for me. The father of David. This would just be a quaint, interesting tale of encouragement if it were just about Naomi getting a grandchild. But this story pushes you beyond itself, to a bigger picture. This passage forces you to look beyond just this story to a bigger plan that God was at work doing. There's a preacher named John Henry Jowett who described preaching like this. One who seems to look at the horizon rather than the enclosed field or a local landscape. He has a marvelous way of connecting every subject with eternity past and eternity to come. It is as though you were looking at a bit of carved wood in a Swiss village window and you lifted up your eyes and saw the forest where the wood was nourished and higher still the everlasting snows. Yes, that was all the great preacher's ways. That was the way of Newman and Spurgeon. They were always willing to stop at the village window, but they always linked the streets with the heights and sent your soul soaring over the eternal hills of God. If preaching doesn't push you beyond this story to a bigger story that you can hold on to, it has failed you. Because you may not be like Naomi holding a grandchild. You may not live your life the way you hope it's going to live. You may not have the things that you've planned and dreamed, but what you have is David's greater son, Jesus. So whatever shattered dream you're holding on to, whatever misplaced expectation you still cling to, there's better news. We call it the gospel. Because the gospel promises you, you have a life that you can't lose. You have a hope that can't be lost. And that's why the story ends like it does with David. Because it points you beyond Naomi and beyond her child she's holding and beyond Ruth and beyond Boaz to something that's bigger. To the gospel of Jesus Christ. I found it fascinating in this story that everything changed when a man showed up who was from Bethlehem. His name was Boaz, but the way the Old Testament writes, the one that comes from Bethlehem who changes your life is Jesus. And he is our only hope. Let's pray. Father, we would ask as we have thought and reflected upon this story and what you're teaching us in the life of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, that our shattered dreams, our misplaced expectations can be turned into a glorious hope if we focus our eyes on Jesus. And so, Father, in the midst of this congregation, we all come with different stories and different experiences. But I would pray that your spirit would bind up the brokenhearted, the wounds that we feel from the pain of life, and that those who are going through a situation like Naomi where they are bitter and angry and feel empty, I pray that you would give them the faith to see the grace that is all around them. Father, for those who are at earlier stages and still feel excitement about certain things and are in a great place in life right now, I pray that you would send your spirit to help them grow in their faith so that when the winds and the waves come, that they will persevere through the power of your spirit. And for those who have made it on the other side, who have a new orientation, I pray that you would keep them faithful to follow you in the new path that you have for them. Father, we ask that all these things would be to your honor and to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.